Welcome to another episode of the Vegan Champion Podcast. Today, we've got an interview with the Dr. T. Colin Campbell. My name's Jason Fonger. I'm your host. And yes, you heard that right. It's the author of a book called The China Study, which is one of America's best-selling books about nutrition. He was also featured in the film Forks Over Knives, in case you saw that one. That was a popular one a few years back. Uh, His book is about a huge 20-year epidemiological study of the same name, The China Study conducted by the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, Cornell University, and Oxford University. It was called the Grand Prix of Epidemiology by the New York Times. Uh, The study looked at mortality rates from cancer and other chronic diseases in 65 different counties in China. The data was correlated with dietary surveys and blood work from 100 people in each of these counties. And the study concluded that counties with a high consumption of animal-based foods were more likely to have higher death rates from Western diseases, while the opposite was true for counties that ate more plant food. It's hard to put into words just how much Dr. Campbell has done to improve our understanding of human nutrition, and I feel very lucky to have uh, to have had the opportunity to pick Dr. Campbell's brain, and I'm really excited to bring this interview to you. Please enjoy my interview with Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Hello, Dr. Campbell. So great to have you on the Vegan Champion Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing today? Very good, considering the circumstances. Considering the time. Indeed, it is an odd time. It is an odd time. And how, how have you been coping with the sort of new reality we're in? Oh, I'm doing okay. I, I, it's, uh, this Zoom business, uh, this virtual stuff is a little bit hard to get used to, but it's working pretty well. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to be able to to connect and and it's bringing a new kind of dimension into you know people people are at home and so it's almost sort of easier to connect to people far away in in a in a strange way. That's right, it sure is. So I would love to have people understand um, you know your your story. Obviously, you are a I don't even know the the right word for uh, for just how important you are to all of the work that's been done to sort of further the understanding of what protein is. I mean, the first question I'm tempted to ask you is just that question, where, where do you get your protein? Because really, um, the way that people answer that question now um, is largely based on you know, a lot of the work that you've done. And so let's, let's start though with, you know, where, where do you come from? You are not a typical um, you know, animal rights activist. I've had animal rights activists on this program before. You are very much, um, you know, a researcher and looking at this from a nutritional point of view and you make a point of sort of distinguishing between some people will say, you know, I, you, you've said, you know, you're not talking about vegan or vegetarian diets. You're, you're looking at the science of nutrition and it's great for people who, you know, do want to take those sort of ethical stances. But I think what you do is very valuable in, in that you're sort of separating and saying, look, Aside from all of that, let's look strictly at the science of what what is what is the nutrition um, what does the nutrition science tell us? So, you actually grew up on a dairy farm, is that correct? Correct. And so, how how does that all pan out? I mean, you grew up on a dairy farm, and eventually you are doing this um, all of this research, and and you know you've really sort of changed your mind on things over the years. So. Give us a little bit of, 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 of a story as to where, where you come from growing up on a dairy farm and how does that all pan out into the work that you've done? Well, I still consider myself primarily just a farm boy, if you will. <laughs> I was raised in Virginia, mm-hmm. west of Washington, D.C. Uh, I actually milked cows, you know, by hand, if you will. Uh, we had machines too. But in any case, uh, there we were producing milk, obviously, and milk is... Uh, valued, as you know, for its high-quality protein, uh, number one, and number two, it's valued, too, for its calcium content. But so I was the first in my family to actually go to university after that. My father had just a couple of years of education. He was an immigrant from Northern Ireland, and so he was anxious for myself and my brothers and sister to get an education. So I, I went away to school, undergraduate, had a year of veterinary school, then got an offer to do a scholarship at Cornell University. Uh, there, I actually, in my graduate program, uh, I did a research dissertation as experimental research 
did a research dissertation on uh, exactly figuring out better ways to produce more protein. And that meant protein from animal sources. So it was very much in that camp, clearly. Uh, then after my graduate studies and sometime in postdoc at MIT, I then uh, was appointed to a faculty in Virginia, Virginia Tech University Biochemistry Department of Biochemistry and Nutrition. And there we had a contract, by the way, uh, from the US State Department to organize a program, a model program if possible for feeding malnourished children in the Philippines. So I spent quite a number of years going back and forth to the Philippines, working with my senior colleague at the time uh, to develop this program. And there, the, the consensus, the nutrition community was that malnourished children around the world are largely deficient either in energy, which some people call calories, or in protein, those two things. So the, what we were charged with was making sure these kids got enough protein. But then I saw something without getting into all the details that led me to believe there's the possibility that the few children getting the most protein, like we do in the West, had a higher risk for getting liver cancer of all things. That was supported in turn by a paper that came out at that time from India, experimental animal study to showing the same thing, higher protein, more cancer. So I was presented with a dilemma. How are we going to promote consumption of more protein, good quality protein from animals? On the one hand, on the other hand, have to deal with this other question. So I came back home, organized a grant from our National Institutes of Health uh, that looked at that question. Is it true that higher consumption of animal protein might cause liver cancer? That grant went on for 27 years. Uh, kept getting renewed. Uh, we were publishing all that research in the very best journals. And uh, yes, it was true. It was very dramatic. Animal protein in the form, in this case, of the protein from cow's milk. Uh, so here, here I am, you see, <laughs> it was quite a, a little journey. And from my personal background, my graduate training, then on to doing this work, uh, ending up sort of in a position to have to challenge what I thought I always knew. You know, more protein, better off we are, which is not true. So that study, though, allowed me to get into some really substantive, basic questions about the relationship between nutrition and health, especially cancer formation of all kinds. And we won't get into those details here, but as I got into these questions, I found myself challenging very fundamental beliefs about the whole cancer industry, about the drug industry, you know, about the kind of food we produce in the world. Uh, I spent 10 years during that time too, very actively involved in national policy development, uh, working uh, in Washington a lot, uh, developing national policy on food and health policy. And so that went on for a while and eventually then I had a chance to do some work in China, uh, just when the United States and China were just opening their doors to each other. And I had a senior colleague from China in my laboratory. And uh, so we organized a study in China to uh, survey a large population across 170 villages across China to see if what I was learning in the laboratory uh, was at all consistent with what might be seen in people in rural China. And sure enough, it was. So I, I've suddenly ended up, I mean, I finally ended up with, after all this work, I ended up with a lot of basic laboratory research on the one hand together with human epidemiological research on the other, largely in rural China, not entirely, but largely in rural China. The, the information was uh, the same, essentially. So it, was, it gave a lot of confidence to me uh, that we have something here to think about, something rather different from what we traditionally do. Certainly it was challenging from my own personal and professional background. And so I had to change my mind. And uh, eventually uh, I was working on some committees in Washington at the National Institutes of Health and elsewhere, uh, often being the only one to be doing this kind of research, but usually always. <laughs> People got interested in what I was doing, whether it was the cancer community or other communities. And uh, there was one occasion when in 1978 to 79, when I was on a committee and 
there's a committee reevaluating grant applications for research. We're the ones who sort of determine who got the money, who didn't, kind of thing. And uh, there was some interest at that time. Now, mind you, this is 40 years ago, uh, where there was some interest arising at that time about the possibility that nutrition was important in cancer. Now we know it is, but you know, in those days, it was kind of novel. And some of the interest was uh, dealing with, uh, as I say, food, nutrition, certain kinds of cancer. So I was asked actually to make a presentation to, to my colleagues, something about nutrition. I didn't want to use the word vegetarianism because what I had arrived at at that point in time was more plant-based, there's no question about that. Uh, and so I thought about it, but I didn't know the word veganism. For me, I never heard of that word, but uh, I, I didn't want to call it vegetarianism because that was not my motivation. That motivation that you put, mentioned before uh, is an excellent motivation. I don't, I don't question that, that's not the, not the issue. But at the same time, I wanted to make the argument that my entire existence, my rationale for doing what I did was based on science, fundamental science. And so that's what I did. I didn't, uh, and uh, it turns out that what I learned is very consistent with the vegetarian vegan community, as you know. Uh, in fact, I had, I, I might tell this, I'm not going to give his name, but probably one of the leading people in the country, in the U.S. at least, uh, advocating for the vegan lifestyle, basically from an animal welfare point of view. He called me up, he didn't want me to use his name. He said, this is after some time after I published the book, The China Study. He, he said to me, he said, whatever you're doing, he says, you're doing more than the rest of us put together. He says, keep doing it. <laughs> and he knew what I was doing. I was using experimental animal research part, uh, which is a no-no, which is unfortunate, but that's what it was. So that, that's my connection. Now, you know, I, I'm still a scientist. I, I uh, eat this way. I appreciate those arguments. You know, the moral arguments and that's totally, that's not the issue either. In other words, now that we got a bunch of arguments, environmental as well, environmental, cost of health care, let's say, um, you know, and the basic science itself. And so it all comes together. And I, I think, I think at this point in time, we are onto something, you know, totally from different perspectives, different personal experiences. We got to change our diet. We got big problems in the world. Absolutely, and uh, and the more the sooner that we can get our friends elsewhere in our societies to understand this, the better off we're all going to be. So I'm going to continue to make the argument, as from the scientific point of view, that I learned what I learned. It was published in the very best journals uh, in in the country and internationally. I've lectured extensively, uh, and so. Uh, I'm finding, a, now, and oh, by the way, back, that experience back on that committee, I didn't want to use a vegetarian vegan words, if you will, as I explained it. So I came up with this odd idea. Let's call it plant-based. That's where the word came from. Really? Yeah, so uh, eventually then I got into some more research having to do whether, whether the nutrients in food are the same as they are might be in supplements. And they're not. Nutrients in food work their magic. It's fantastic. But if you take them out and put them in pill form, there's a, you're under a risk. They're not going to either not going to work, or they might actually have the opposite effect. So I then stuck the word whole in the front of it. Whole food plant-based. That's where the word came from uh, in the late 1978-79. So and I, I tell you that because um, th that word now has become pretty almost yeah. commonplace and i hear it a lot uh, can, can I, I'm, I'm, yeah go ahead i just i was just a question on that because there has recently been i believe kind of a hijacking of that term my understanding of the term was that it was always sort of a way of as you said putting aside any ethical arguments valid as they may be and talking about the diet like this is about the food that we're eating for a nutritional reason but your intention of it originally, can I just clarify, was 100% plant-based. It, it does not mean plant-based is like, oh, I mostly eat plants, but I still eat some chicken and, and milk, but it's mostly plants. Because that seems to be what's happening is people are hijacking the term plant-based now to mean mostly kind of vegan. So what was your original intent of the term? 
Well, your comment is excellent, by the way. And it made me, it's made me go back and, and reflect a little bit on my choice of those words, whole food plant-based. And I could have done better. Uh, I was trying to think of something better the night before I was giving a presentation to the committee. Uh, and, and that's what I came up with. I, I think it, it could have been better. Uh, but you're, what, what, you're, what you're raising, the question you're raising and others have raised too, am I talking about 100% plant-based or is it, like you say, you're doing your part right? Here's a way I address that question. I, I'd like to you know, uh, rest my comments on, on sound science. So here's what I say. For me, the goal, the ideal is 100%. That is the goal. But at the same time, at the same time, I have to say that I don't know really good uh, empirical published science that says everybody has to eat 100% to be healthy the rest of their lives. We don't have that kind of research, right? On the one hand, on the other hand, we have got a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence and other kinds of evidence that suggests that even a small amount of animal food intake, even a small amount can cause problems. In China, for example, we saw that. We saw it in a more experimental kind of research. In fact, what I'm referring to is if you look at the relationship between animal protein intake and different disease outcomes, you know, let's see, and people have done that. Over, over time, they sometimes don't refer to animal protein, they'll say saturated fat or they'll say something else, uh, skim milk, for example, but they're really talking about animal protein. If you do that sort of correlation and graphic, graphically, the regression line for animal protein for all these different diseases in different countries, that regression line goes less linear and goes right through the origin, the XY origin, which says, in theory, as soon as you start putting little animal food on your diet, we're asking for, we're, we're, we can experience increased risk. Now, whether it happens to everyone or not, of course, it doesn't necessarily happen straight off, uh, but in due course, it does. So the question then becomes, for me, well, if, if, there, if the goal is 100%, why don't we do it and stay there? Well, that's what I argue, because there's other reasons to be 100%, aside from your welfare reasons. There's a reason just simply if we start eating that way, you know, 100% and not taking uh, added oil, for example, which is pro-inflammatory, if we do that, um, then you got, become accustomed to that taste. That's a critical step. And it's amazing how soon we can become accustomed, maybe a month or two or three, but most people agree with that. Once you get there, then you're in a position kind of looking back at what you did before. You say, what in the world did I do that for? So then all of a sudden, uh, so it, it, there's a very practical reason to be 100% and stay there, even though I might not be able to defend that everybody should, you know, in that sense. Uh, so we, so there's a little tricky question. I'm glad you raised that because I, I know this has been a discussion of recent times. Uh, but I still say, let's go 100% stay there and uh, that's and, and there's lots of other reasons for doing that now especially given even the COVID-19 problem that we are now experiencing if we can talk about that in a moment mm -hmm, for sure but every time that we uh, the word nutrition you know the basic fundamental scientific argument for what nutrition really is and how it works suggests we should be as near as possible, one hundred percent plant based. Mm -hmm. That's that's a very that's a, an excellent answer, um, from my perspective. And I, I think that my my thinking is completely aligned with what you said. There is that like it's very it must be very difficult from a scientific perspective to prove you know that one hundred percent. I mean that's an absolute. That's got to be very difficult to prove that kind of thing. That's right. Um, but in practice. You know, somebody who's somebody who's got the attitude of, look, I am aiming for the healthiest diet. Therefore, I'm going to aim for as much as possible whole food, plant based. That that is the goal. That's the practical goal. And the more people say, oh, just a little bit of this won't hurt or just a little bit of that won't hurt. Uh, it, it can be I mean, it probably depends on the person, but that can be a very slippery slope. Yeah. Well, that argument, that, that uh, incidentally played out with respect to the smoking 
question of lung cancer some years ago, because you know it says okay, smoking is bad, and then people generally understood that. Uh, but then it's very difficult to tell if you're a doctor to tell a patient, hey, uh, you got to quit smoking. But oh, yeah, okay, you can you can have a cigarette or two maybe you, on some occasions. You can't do that. There, that kind of research has been done because the first thing you know, the person is right back on the wrong track again. So it doesn't work that way. And I think the same argument applies here. That if you start cheating, uh, yeah, that's a slippery slope itself. That, that leads into another question I've really been wanting to ask you. A lot of people talk about calories, um, you know, caloric restriction for weight loss. Um, some people will say that if you're eating, if you're eating as much as you want of whole food, you know, whole plant-based foods, if you eat as much as you want of that, it's very, very difficult to overeat. People give kind of different guidelines and ways of thinking about how much to eat, right? Like how, how do you think about, you know, advising people to know, you know, because I think people, because food, you know, perhaps similar to cigarettes can be somewhat addictive, especially if you've got perhaps, you know, added salts and sugars and sweeteners and animal products. I'd like, like you know, are animal products addictive in the same way that cigarettes are perhaps? Um, and does, do these sort of addictive we'll use that word. Some people will talk about food addictions and things like that and, and different ingredients that make more foods more or less addictive. And people are, I think people are very confused as to how much to eat. And I think it gets thrown off perhaps by these sort of stimulating foods. And so people do these crash diets and they think that they need to, you know, eat a starvation diet just to lose weight. And I think that people could really use some guidance on that. So could we get some words of wisdom as to know how much, how much to eat? Well, first off, there's a general rule of thumb uh, coming from nature that the amount of food we consume is pretty much determined by calories. In other words, we, we need to have a certain amount of food. That's what we, we up to a certain limit. So uh, it, it's there. It's, that, that tends to drive our, our habits. You know, getting enough food to eat, period. <laughs> Of course, we choose different kinds of food, and some foods are more calories than other foods, and so forth. I, I do have to add a comment, though, from the scientific point of view. You know, there is no such thing as a calorie. Not in a materialistic sense. There's no such thing. Uh, mean, all it is is a measurement. It's a measurement of the degree of heat or energy. And you only can determine that by taking a substance in the food, putting it in a calorimeter, we call it, or, or not a calorimeter, in a... In a to burn it, if you will, combustion thing, and then measure how much heat does it give off. So it's just only a measurement. It's like uh, it's the same as inches or feet. It's, it's kind of crazy. We think of it as a, a substance. It's not a substance. Okay, but having said that little quirky thing, uh, on the other hand, uh, we can't overconsume calories. If I can use that jargon, overconsume calories, we can gain some weight. When the whole food plant-based diet first was coming for us, usually in a form of veganism that, at that point, point in time, um, it, there is an argument, a pretty good scientific argument, that you're going to eat less calories in that form of diet because what you're doing when we're eating uh, the whole food, the plant-based food, we're consuming more fiber. We're getting full, fuller, quicker. So, you know, the stomach is extended to a certain point and we will tend to not eat as much. So the argument rose, eat more, weigh less. was right. a time of a couple of books that were contesting with each other at the time. That was an overstatement. That was an overstatement. Okay. Because now we know you, we can overeat on plant-based foods and have obesity problems. It's easy because all we need to do, okay, in a, in a bigger setting, we're not eating animal foods, fair enough. Right, but we're going to get um, calories. We're going to get calories some someplace. We kind of fill up, and that is the highest source of calories, and it's very addictive. So we start adding fat, more. Fat. Sorry, more you, said, you said yeah. you said fat is the highest source. Yeah. So the more and more fat we consume, usually in the form of added oils, even so-called good oils from plants, mm -hmm. but usually in the form of added oils, and it, it really is addictive. We we start using oil in our foods and stuff like that, maybe in cooking and dressing, so forth and so on. We have a tendency to use more and more because <laughs> that's one of our bad habits. 
Uh, the same with sugar or salt. There are all kind of addictive kinds of substances. And so uh, what happens with the uh, vegans oftentimes is that they may, of course, they're not concerned with animal, animal foods, but what they're, they still want to get calories. And so they use more of the high calorie foods, especially added oils, and they get in trouble. So the, the health consequence of being a vegan on average are not much better, well, somewhat better than eating animal-based food. Because, you know, they're eating food that's rich in you know, fat and sugar and salt, if you will. It's just a, it's a nasty addiction. So what I'm, I'm saying, we let's go, let's go eat a whole plant-based food, the whole thing, right? And uh, just have a little bit of modesty about it. And know that, you know, we, we can stray off a bit. For some people, a lot of people not, but some people, stray off and just dump on oil and the sugar and this and that and everything else. That's not good. That's not good. So uh, so eating a plant-based diet uh, helps to control calorie intake if we want to talk about it that way. It certainly helps, but it's not the be-all and end-all for every single person. Yeah, I think, I think that um, that that's very helpful for people to sort of realize the, the benefits of eating a plant-based diet in the way that you're intending the term. Um, and, and by the way, just quick, have you thought more about like, if you could turn the clock back and use another term, have you thought about like what term you would prefer? Yeah, good question. I thought about that so much. I just bored myself to death. I can't think of much better, <laughs> but uh, a, a minor change instead of saying, uh, whole food plant-based diet, uh, I probably should say whole plants, whole plants, whole plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. a, you know, a whole plants diet, maybe a whole plants whole diet. Whole plants diet, something like that. You can throw those words around. I've gone back and forth on this thing. <laughs> and, but now the whole food plant-based thing is kind of stuck. Yeah, it has. It has. But, uh, you know, there's a little bit of nuance there that... <laughs> We can, we can talk about but. yeah and i mean that's that's what i was going to get into is like that's i think it's very good to make that distinction you have your you know standard and even even with non-vegan diets you know you have your standard american diet with tons of fried food and you know processed and then you have maybe i don't know another like a mediterranean diet or like you know uh, a, a diet from somewhere else in the world where they have a, a much higher amount of plant-based foods in the diet. Like there's differences, right? It's not just vegan versus non-vegan, right? We do need to, if we're talking about nutrition, we need to consider the nuances there. And I think that's a good distinction to make. You know, if you're, if you're eating, is it fair to say this, that if you're eating a truly, as you mean, whole foods, plant-based diet, no added oils, no sugars, or at least very, very minimal amounts, um, that you are basically able to eat to satisfaction? Like, is that a fair guideline? Like if, if you're eating the right foods, yeah. eat till satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just uh, be, be conscious of the idea that uh, we can't overeat if we are stressed, if we are this or that or something else. Uh, you know, there's a statement, there, there's a, a belief in uh, China and Asia in, in general, I think, they eat to 80% fullness. That goes back centuries. Uh, and, and, you know, if we, we're eating away and if we stop and think as we're tending to get full, okay, do we really need to have that next bite? You know, sometimes you stop and think about it a little bit, you don't. Yeah. I, I'm curious, um, curious as to your diet and how, like, how, like, what do you, what do you eat? Could you walk us through like what, you know, what, what the, what do you eat in a day? Like just a typical oh. day, just. You know, what, my, stock an, my stock answer is I eat whatever my wife fixes me. <laughs> That's a good answer. Well, we've been married for 58 years. She's gone along with this really well. We've oh, had grown children and grandchildren and so forth. We all do this. It's 100% essentially. But um, in the morning, uh, I, it's, it's almost standard for all of us, I guess, this business is oatmeal, you know, cereal, oatmeal with some uh, fruit on it. Uh, that's and if one wants to have some liquid on it called milk, don't use the dairy. Use those plant milks we can use. Uh, I tend to not use any kind of milk, just uh, hot oatmeal maybe, maybe cold cereal. Uh, you know, it, with, it, with lots of fruit. That's it. Sometimes we have pancakes, but more or less same thing. It's you know, it's a cereal and fruit. 
with a really big helping of uh, fruit mix or something like, like that. Then at lunch time, it's salads of all kinds. Uh, I, I mean, we really get to a point, you're maybe probably the same way. I, I crave a salad. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't go for more than two or three days. Yeah, you know, I've got to have a salad. Yeah. So we, we have uh, that for lunchtime, maybe soup. Uh, and then in the evening, uh, a little, you know, a more robust meal, if you could say. Uh, cooked food, obviously. Uh, it's okay. It's no, no problem there. Uh, and uh, my wife has got a bunch of uh, recipes. Actually, those recipes, too, our daughter, Leanne, has a China study cookbook. Oh, wow. Your, da your, your daughter's name is Leanne? That's actually my mom's name. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's, she, uh, she, in any case, she was in education, but she made this book, created this book. And there's been two versions of it. It's, been, it's done really well. It's called the China Study Cookbook. And our daughter-in-law, uh, Kim Campbell, also has a book called, uh, I mean, a book called uh, Plant Pure Nation or Plant Pure Cookbook, something, something like that. Her we'll husband, put it in the show notes. Her oldest son, uh, who's the director of a film called Plant Pure Nation, that you can get on Amazon and Netflix. And yeah, so people should check that wife. out. Uh, Kim, incidentally, she's offering online quite a lot of um, cooking shows, if you will, how to cook. She's quite good at that. Beautiful. We'll make sure I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, and people can uh, can check that out and get all the all the recipes. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Phone call. I got a quick guess here. Sure. Yep. Okay. <laughs> no worries. It's um, but yeah, that's that's great. So. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's a hard question to answer because I'm sure it varies on the season and, you know, you, you want to get different vegetables in and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's great. So we'll make sure that people can, can check out, you know, those, some of those resources if they're interested in, in some of the recipes. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, to speak about nutrition. Um, sorry, go ahead if you need to take that. So the, um, the the context in which we're speaking right now i mean if we can maybe move into a little bit of of what's what's happening in the world right now you know there's there's some people who are upset when i when i bring up kind of some relevant facts to our current situation um, mainly being, you know, one thing I talk about is, okay, we can talk about vaccines and we can talk about social distancing and, and, and all this stuff. And I'm not necessarily against any of that, but I would like to also add to the discussion that it is important for human beings to have a healthy immune system. And there's a relationship there between food. And I know that it's, it's a touchy thing to bring up in a sensitive time, but I think we, we all need to hopefully, as you say, like the, you know, 40 years ago, you, it was, it was, it was sort of outlandish to say, Oh, maybe there's something going on here. You know, the relationship between nutrition and, and health basically like, and, but I mean, now it seems as though, I mean, have we really come so far? Are we still stuck in a sort of age where people are, I mean, doctors are still sometimes, you know, surprised to hear people say, Oh, doctor, do you think maybe I should change what I'm eating? And that might help my condition. Oh, no, it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, there's still that mentality still exists. Um, how do you approach, you know, speaking about this issue in this time where people are sensitive and perhaps, you know, don't want to be told that, you know, they may have a better chance of surviving any pandemic if they have a healthy immune system? Like, am, am I out of line to be thinking that, that, you know, in the midst of a world where, you know, there's a pandemic going around that if you're eating a diet that supports a healthy immune system, you know, am I going to, uh, am I putting my, my head out to get chopped there? Or is there some validity to saying, to saying that? No, there is a lot of validity. It's very, very important. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you raised this. Um, the, uh, we, we have a new book. I've just finished a new book. Uh, it'll be coming out in December discussing this question in a sense. Uh, especially in the historical context. Uh, I got a lot of pushback for many, many years for some of the things I was doing and saying from my own community. And uh, so uh, I was at Oxford University for a year and I 
went back to look at the literature and the old literature and the English literature. Found fascinating uh, stuff in the 1800s, late 1700s, on into the 1900s uh, that actually kind of set the stage for the situation we're now in, either in regards to nutrition information, uh, but also in regards to the way they practice medicine. So that book uh, is coming out, as I say, in December. Um, and uh, I wrote it with my grandson, who's a literature, excellent writer kind of person. Um, and so and to answer your question, I, uh, it's just had a long history. And we kind of got stuck in this place. And what I have finally arrived, we didn't talk about this, but my own research over the years, is there's a one thing that I think that uh, stands out for me. Maybe two things. Let's, let's avoid animal protein. We don't need that. That story about animal protein started in 1839, when it was first discovered. And it was given the name protein from the Greek word, proteos, which means of prime importance. Hmm. And you sort of begs the question, why did they think of this as prime importance? They discovered that this is the first nutrient discovered, and they gave it that name. So there was already at that time a fairly strong theory, but what it did, it came from meat. And therefore, all of a sudden now we had a scientific justification for consuming meat or animal foods. That's why you get your protein. Well, a lot of that, uh, that history fed, fed on itself and uh, exacerbated the, the problem. And so we just got to a point over the years, over 150 years, to now have scientific justification for eating animals. Which is not valid, if it, and that's the story I'm sort of telling in the book. Um, there, there was a second part of your question that you were asking. I speaking I speaking about this, um, the importance of nutrition and, and, and supporting a healthy immune system amidst the pandemic is just is a touchy, right, right. touchy topic. Well, in any case, it led me all of that stuff. You know, looking at the the nutritional effect, if you will, in a variety of ways and in some detail, biochemically. It turns out that I have a very different perception and even definition for nutrition than what I had myself. Now, I mean, I taught upper class nutrition and introductory biochemistry in the university for many, many years. So the, the position that our research led me to is nutrition should not be considered only a bag of nutrients, each acting independently. That's wrong. But we talk about nutrition in the context of how much fat, how much protein, how much fiber, how much this, how much that. That's, that's not the way to think about it. It's very misleading. Because nutrition is comprised of almost infinite numbers of nutrients and nutrient-like substances. Can't even count them all. I mean, there's so, so much. And what, when in the form of whole food, when that's consumed, the body seems to know what to do with it kind of breaks it down, digests it, absorbs it, sends it here, there, and every place, and it participates then in our, our, our needs, our metabolic needs, if you will. And it turns out there's, uh, that, that activity is infinitely complex. We'll never, ever work out all those details. And even if we theoretically could, it would change in the next nanosecond. And this is going on in, you know, more than, and we're somewhere between 10 and 100, million, 100 trillion cells, none of which can be seen with the naked eye. Imagine that. Every cell is like the universe. And within that universe, there's just infinite complexity and reactions going on and so forth and so on. You stop and think about it that way. I think of it as a, what I call a holistic concept. That's nature at work. Okay, that's the first thing we really need to know is that nutrition cannot be oversimplified. The best way to, to, to simply form is just make a decision of what to eat. And my, my suggestion is eat whole food and basically make sure it's plants. And that would cover most of our needs, just doing it that way. But as far as the science is concerned, it's, it's infinitely complex, always adapting. That's nature, always adapting. And so nature seems to know how to keep us healthy. All we need to do is give, our, give ourselves the right food. I've... I mean, that, so, so with that in mind, with that in mind, and understanding nutrition that way, rather than starting out with something definite about some specific nutrient that's only confusing, 
because the sultan's not out of context. Rather starting that way, let's back off and recognize that the whole, the whole thing is really what matters. That's where the real health comes from. More or less confusing. Keep the message simple. Just eat this whole food. And if one is in science or philosophy, something like that, one know more detail. It's fine and dandy. You know, we'll work, work on it, figure out what's going on. But but the message is really simple. Uh, and uh, it's almost like end of story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, from my limit, like, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm just trying as a normal person to, to understand and kind of make sense of, you know, a little bit why it is that plants seem to be uh, so health promoting. Um, one of the things that I've, that I've heard about and then trying to understand is sort of the, the, the microbiome and the influence that, you know, plant, plant foods help to create healthy, uh, you know, gut bacteria and so forth. And that the immune system is, is largely sort of dependent on some of those uh, functions in the body. And that by, you know, eating a, well, to get sort of specific, but like a high fiber diet, for example, I believe it sort of helps to feed some of the, the, the gut bacteria and the important, you know, parts of our immune system that rely on that. And that, you know, if there's a pandemic going around and it's like, well, whether or not you survive may depend on how strong your immune system is. You know, is there some validity there in saying like, look, we need to perhaps, um, you know, for, 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 our, for our immune system's sake, people should be eating plant-based diets rather than just, I mean, sure, maybe the, you know, the masks, social distancing, vaccines, not saying that any necessarily any of that is a bad idea or unnecessary, but is this another defense mechanism that will, you know, help people to be resistant you know, and resilient to sort of, you know, viruses or, or is that just, you know, it doesn't, do you, do you think it doesn't matter how healthy you are, you get this, this COVID thing, it's just a roll of the dice, whether or not you're eating plants, it's not going to matter. Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, first off, I, I totally agree with what you just said. Let's abide by the social practices that, that suggested, you know, to reduce our exposure to the virus if possible. So the face mask, social distancing, I, I really dislike it. Uh, and I don't think many people want to live that kind of life all yeah. the time. And so, uh, but they're important. Let's, let's also have some tests to see whether or not we've been affected or not affected. Let's have some tests too to see if we have been affected and maybe we've formed antibodies. That's another sort of angle there. Here's, here's the story that uh, I am now basically just bringing to the attention of the public. Namely, it's this. The whole nutrition concept, as I just described it, whole food, all these nutrients working together, what they show, what that does, is it prevents a whole host of degenerative diseases. It's almost a total panoply of just all kinds of diseases. But most of our information has come from studies on heart disease, cancer, diabetes, so forth and so on, obesity. Uh, and, and so it's the same strategy to reduce the risk for all of them. Okay, and this, incidentally, it's not just about preventing them. Now we know you can use this kind of disease to actually treat people who have the problem. It goes, it goes back the other way. So it's both prevention and treatment. Mostly focused, as I say, on degenerative diseases. And then right. at the same time, it also uh, enhances athletic performance, believe it or not. I've That's noticed that. That's important. And, and then, as far as these different systems are concerned, you told about the, uh, the immune system, for example, mm -hmm. or the uh, gut microbiome, uh, they're all, they, we, we sort of arbitrarily class them into certain systems. The, the microbiome is, of course, an infinite number of organisms, zillions of different kinds of organisms in our gut that plays a role in various and sundry ways. There are many different ways. Uh, in fact, my master's thesis many years ago was exactly on that. I, I did, I think, the first microbiome study ever done, but uh, I could change the, the digestion patterns by introducing the organisms from one species to another and it can change it. But anyhow, that's, that's another story. There's lots of systems. There's microbiome, as I said. There's the uh, acid-base balance thing, which is a very touchy subject. It has to be just regulated within certain limits. Uh, there's the immune system, there's the cardiovascular system, you know, there's uh, all kinds of, there's a neurological system. All of these are grand big systems that seem to address certain kinds of points of view. It's true what you said. 
people are shocked with a plant-based diet that prevents heart disease, that's prevention of degenerative diseases, they're coming to realize, yeah, there's something there, it really works. They have kind of set aside the idea that that same formula can work on viral diseases, like the current pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. That has not been part of our conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, in science, it's not been part of the conversation in medicine, for sure. Uh, that maybe that doesn't work there, kind of thing. Well, it turns out, in our study in China, where we were uh, actually surveying diet and disease mortality rates for what turned out to be 170 different counties in mainland China and Taiwan, and we measured uh, you know, lots and lots of things, all kinds of disease rates, and we collected all kinds of information on blood and urine and food and analyzed food, and we had lots of information on nutrition. So that study actually enabled us to look at complex issues with some granularity, you know, looking at specific things, how they arrange one another. Turns out, we also included in that study four diseases that are caused in large measure, or at least enhanced in large measure by viruses. And in one case, that's a hepatitis B virus. In that case, we studied in some detail because that was focused on its causing liver cancer. And liver cancer was another hat I was wearing in, in cancer, working with liver cancer. And so we had an opportunity of measuring in that study the amount of antibodies against that virus, as well as the amount of antigens, as they're called. Antigen is the native form of the virus, the active form. So antibodies, basically, let's, let's call it for sake of discussion, that's the inactive virus. Antibody, I mean, antigen is the active, so we got antigen antibody, right? Mm -hmm. So, viruses, they all have different, and they all call, tend to cause different symptoms. That's a given. We know that. You just name it, almost any, name it, it'll be a virus that kind of does that. When it infects us, we get to all these different symptoms at the endpoint, and we all think they're all unique and all very different. No, they are in that sense. However, they have something in common. When we get, become infected with those things, that is the virus is landing on us as a host, if you will. Uh, and the viruses survive by being on hosts. They can't even multiply themselves, really. They use our machinery in the cells to multiply themselves. They're very insidious. So viruses can be nasty. Obviously, it can be very nasty. So when we get exposed to it, uh, the first thing the body wants to do with all these viruses is to come to its defense by forming antibodies. So for a lot of viruses, we eventually form some immunity, usually in the form of the amount of antibodies, right? Right. In the, coming back to the China study, what we did there, we measured the amount of antibodies in a total of 8,900 adults. The amount of antibodies in all these people as a function of various nutritional practices including different measurements of plant food consumption, different measurements of animal food consumption, and a number of other things. But it turns out that the consumption of vegetables in that population is highly, highly statistically significant with more antibodies. Wow. It's the only study of this kind I think so far published any place in the world. So what we saw was a highly significant, statistically significant, if you're familiar with statistics, it's a probability level of 0.001. I mean, it's like one chance in a thousand. So uh, in any case, uh, so what we saw, this real empirical data is, I'm not making this up, it's not that people consume more plants, more antibodies to that virus, very striking. And we measure it in different ways to prove the point. In the same token, people consume more animal food and it only took a small amount because in rural China, it wasn't, they didn't consume that much. But people consume more animal food, less antibodies. Therefore, that means uh, when there's less antibodies, there's more antigen, the virus is active. Now it can do its dirty work. In that particular case, that virus causes liver cancer. It turns out, and this is studied in the laboratory, this experimental animals is studied in this case, but I'm sure it's the same thing. 
the hepatitis B viruses causes liver cancer, period. When it's an active form like that, it turns out when we give more animal protein consumption, the liver really turns that liver cancer on. Unbelievable. So the consumption of animal food from that study we have, more animal food is associated with more viral activity, more symptoms, let's say, and less antibodies. In contrast, consuming more plant food, more antibodies, more, right? There's a big difference. More antibodies and less of the uh, activation, less symptoms. So, so basically, if I can just, let me just make sure. Yeah, yeah go ahead. No, so, no. so just, just check my understanding here. So in the study that you did, you, you, were, you were looking at, what was it, 8,000, 8, 7,000 people or something? 8,900. 8,900 8, people. adult people. So, so what you found is a correlation between basically their body's ability to create antibodies um, is in it's, they, they're going to be able to do that better. Their body's able to produce more antibodies. The more vegetables they're eating, the less animal protein they're consuming, right? Right. Got that? Because, yeah, well, I'm not. Yeah, the more you, you say it again, the more vegetables they consume. You said something about protein. I missed that. The more vegetables they consume, it helps them produce more antibodies. The right. more animal protein they consume, it seems, seems to inhibit their body's ability to produce yes. antibodies. Exactly. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal because what that says, what that says is that that will generally work. I'm going to suggest. This is a lot of stuff that's got to be proven. But, you know, in, in, in uh, biology, there are certain things that are commonplace. That kind of phenomenon will exist as far as I'm concerned for virtually all viruses. Mm. So that means we, we're being exposed to viruses continually on a continual basis. We have epidemics all the time. If people are eating this way, that's a plant-based diet, they're going to be continually resistant to those problems. So it's a long-term solution as well as to some extent a short-term solution. And I say that advisedly because somebody already got the symptoms, you know, they're not, they're not eating. Well, you can't do much there with that, obviously, that's, that's too late. But you can, for those who are infected, once they're test positive, before you know, they're without symptoms, asymptomatic positive testing people, if they change their diets like that, we just begin to see uh, changes, significant changes in one to two days on something pretty amazing. Certainly with a week and even more in a month and so forth. But the point is that uh, if we consume this kind of diet all the time on a continual basis is what we should do. We're gonna be continually resistant to those viruses. Or let's say much less resistant. The, the viruses still land on us. I, I don't think that that has anything to do with that. You know, we, we may get exposed, but fortunately for a lot of people, if we got a good immune system, you know, you're going to hardly even know mm. that you were ever infected. That's, that's the story. And some of the data is now just coming out sort of prove that point that they'll tell you that for some straight, they'll say it this way, for some strange reason, you know, 80% of the people seem like they've been, they've been, uh, they had the virus, but nothing much ever happened or just something similar. They didn't detect it. While they were doing something, whatever it was, not altogether dying. Most of the people who are dying from this disease are people whose nutrition has been compromised. That is to say, they are not using the plant-based diet. That's why they're dying. They're in that position. It's like 95, the figures are between 95 and 99% of the people, older age, who are dying from this are obviously suffering these diseases like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so forth. That's why they're susceptible to it. Well, I'm very glad I asked you that question. And that is, a, that is an extremely, um, well, I, I think important answer for people to hear, right? And- Yeah, that's I mean, right, just change your diet. Yeah, and, and, but, there's, but there's obviously some science to, to back up you know, yes. what, what my thinking is that I, I was not aware of. I was not aware of that, that you know, that, that's, that science yeah, I, that backs up. I, I do want to make a point about that since you're not, not in science. You know, there's various degrees of scientific significance, okay? 
uh, in a lot of science, we will say we believe such and such and such and such, right? Based on the data we have. Uh -huh. uh, always, we can always use more data you know, to make more certain a statement we may have. Uh -huh. So statements we may make, you know, as to what we believe to be true, there's some degree of relativity here. If we want to be absolutely certain, which I, I, I would argue we should never be absolutely certain, but there's some methodologies in science that we use, like the randomized clinical control stuck trial or something like that, but that's for drugs, that's not for nutrition. Uh, so uh, what I'm saying, the evidence we have, these correlations, highly significant, we got this, we got this, and put it all together. Uh -huh. It gives me a great deal of confidence. Uh -huh. What I'm saying is true. I mean, there's there's one more thing that I I mean I could I could keep asking you questions for hours on end, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to do this again sometime. But one one more thing that I really wanted to hear your perspective on before we wrap up here, as I fully admit, you know, not a scientist, looking try, trying my best to look into the science that's going on around nutrition and, and, and make sense of it all. One of the things that I am concerned with, and I think a lot of people outside of the scientific community and perhaps inside the scientific community are, are concerned with, is, is sort of the integrity of, of the science that's being done these days and the, the scientific discussion that is happening or perhaps not being allowed to happen for various reasons. I guess what I mean is, you know, how much research is being done these days that is really honest research where people are just, they're trying to figure something out for the purpose of making humanity, you know, making the world a better place. And how much is that research perhaps not really happening because funding for certain research is trying to get certain things to be proven. Um, if you sort of know what I'm getting at, like, I guess what I'd like to say to, to hear your perspective on is, you know, how healthy is science, like the state of science and research that's being done right now. What are your thoughts on maybe what, what could perhaps change in the way that things are being discussed? I mean, the points you raised um, are great points. And do you, I mean, when you turn on the news and you see everybody talking about vaccines and masks and I haven't heard anybody talking about uh, nutrition or anything like that. It's not in the discussion, you know, looking at antibodies. What do you say to the scientific community in a time like this? Um, what would you like to see the discussion, you know, looking more like um, any comments on, on, you know, in that regard? Yeah, let, let me describe science in two ways. It's a great question. I've spent a whole career sort of thinking about this, especially in policy. The kind of science, when I talk about science, I'm talking about the idealistic form of science where you make an observation, you form a hypothesis, you test it, you are willing to take criticism, you adjust back and forth, that kind of science. That's really nice. You know, uh, remove our subjectivity as much as possible, just looking at facts, okay? That's the ideal. That happens. That happens. Uh, there's some communities we can, we can, that sort of thing happen. Unfortunately, and this has been changing just during my own lifetime, the science has been done in academic institutions in particular, which was public money, let's say. All of my research, I got generous amounts of funding for many, many years. It was all public money. I took none from industry, number one. I published it, you know, in the very best journals. It was all peer reviewed. So I had uh, my colleagues looked at it, decided whether I just published. Um, that kind of science, unfortunately, I, I was able to do that because I had what is called tenure for many years. I got my tenure when I was in my 30s, actually. Uh, and so that gave me academic freedom, so I could speak my mind. So I don't, I, I didn't depend on any source of funding from the outside. I'm not representing anyone. I'm just looking at the basis of science. Unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues these days don't have that opportunity because tenure has been declining, really seriously declining. And this is, I don't know this, the, how much of this I know for Canada, but certainly for the uh, United States, it's been a really a horrific trend in my mind. Why is that? Well, because now, if you, if you don't have tenure, if you don't have tenure, then you can get hired to teach whatever they want you to teach. You can't stray outside the boundaries very much. Obviously, I've been straying outside the boundaries for my entire career on various other things. And I've been able to do it because I had tenure, I felt protected. 
I mean, people have had to try and then formally get me thrown out of my profession or, you know, dismissed from the university. Those, those kind of questions exist. I was able to withstand them because I had training. I said, just go jump on a leg. I'm going to do what I want to do. But, but on the other hand, for many of the younger people going into academia these days, they're not protected for that. They might be hired for one year, two years, five years, whatever, given an appointment or something of that sort. They kind of, kind of stay within the boundaries. If they stray a little bit beyond what the university might be interested in, or beyond what the, world, the public is willing to accept, they get fired. They certainly won't get renewed. Their, their appointment will not be renewed. So unfortunately, the kind of science that we're now living with is tainted. Sometimes, in some cases, it's tainted very badly because it's funded by industry, and they want the scientists to teach it, you know, to find something they find interesting. But a lot of other science is quite good in many, in many ways, as long as it doesn't stray beyond the, you know, the, the more sacred boundaries. And, and there are, unfortunately, there are some sacred boundaries. I call them edges of paradigms that really do exist. And if they cross that line uh, and they don't have tenure, then their chances of getting renewed appointment are much, much less. So I can understand your concern as a member of the public and and uh, that's, of course, the way it is. And then the public is being cheated. So I've worked at the policy area for, I did for about 20 years in this country and elsewhere. And so I know how policy forms and, and uh, the policies that we get, like dietary guidelines, for example. Uh, the United States and Canada cooperated on, on one occasion for that, but in any case, the kind of dietary guidelines we have are very important because they, they tend to set the standards against which you judge uh, school lunch programs. You judge all kinds of things by these policies. And those policies, at the end of the day, they're, they're issued by government. Scientists are on committees to make recommendations. But in the final analysis, they're issued by government. And government, at least in the United States, much less so in China, I mean uh, Canada, but certainly true in this country, we have the best politicians that money can buy. Hmm. So politicians are prisoners of the economic system. Right. It's that simple. I want to be very blunt about that. And absolutely about that. We have a system by which politicians in large measure have to pay attention to who's paying for their election. Now, when the government has the final say of what the dietary guidelines should be, you can guess the people in charge are responding to the politicians who appoint them. So, you know, we are, in, in many ways, we're a prisoner to a system that now, in my view, is, is unfortunately, it's, it's really corrupt. People are learning things, they're hearing things according to what the system wants to hear and do. I know I've been pretty, you know, pretty uh, maybe uh, acid about this, uh, maybe too candid, but that's what I've seen. I'm telling you that about in the new book that I'm now publishing, some of that. Uh, and there are certain things we could do. Candidate, let me make one remark for your Canadian audience at least. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. The Canadian authorities and the American authorities kind of joined forces a bit. I know there was a time to issue a joint uh, dietary guidelines kind of thing. Um, fortunately, the Canadians kind of did their own thing because the Canadians, they've issued these statements every five years. So the last round, the Canadians had the audacity and the courage to actually say something that really deviates from the norm. They brought, they cautioned the public about consuming too much dairy. Yes. The United States did not do that. Canada did. So I say yay for Canada. Yeah, we have to give credit. Yeah, that's right. You give credit what writers do. They were running against some uh, headwinds, obviously, to do that. Mm -hmm, but they time. did it. They did it. And 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 I, I just I give a big hand to the Canadians for doing Me that. Me too. We we just need to uh, and that goes back to the political system Canada has, quite frankly, compared to ours. I think the Canadian system, I've rushed most of the universities in Canada actually, or the medical schools. Um and, and the Canadian the Canadian system, as I'm sure you know, I, I see it from as from the outside, so you can 
you're looking at us an outsider making this comment, but the Canadian system is a, a somewhat more socialistic, which mm -hmm. has a meaning for me, because mm -hmm. it's it, they're a little more conscious of serving the system. There are places they they have problems too, like we we both yep. have problems, but they they're encumbered to some extent. But they are more a little easier for them to make some be bolder and look after the citizens. I've actually uh, I've got a I've got a meeting with my local MP next week where I'm looking to discuss um, there's a there's a, a movement in Canada uh, shout out to Nation Rising who their mission is to end subsidies for animal agriculture in Canada so um, I'm kind of interested to see if there's anything that I can do that can be done to, to sort of end that. But I mean, like, look, it's sort of, if, I mean, if we could get that done where that, you know, dairy was basically removed from, you were speaking about sort of the, the, basically the dietary guidelines that are put out every five years by the, by the government. Right? right. And so what happened was the last one that was put out for people who may not be familiar with uh, dairy was its own sort of food group, right. Or like milk or whatever it said before that, you know, they were recommending dairy and then they took it off. So now, I mean, maybe you can talk about the, the change they made a bit. I know, I know we'll wrap this up soon here, but that's, that was basically the gist of it, right? Is they, they took dairy off. They, they just uh, raised the, they inferred, you know, question about the so-called health value of dairy. Right. And that's what makes it that. Yeah. I know the dairy industry reacted. They were not yes. happy. They were not happy. So that's the way it is. Yeah. But you know, we have to have more of that if we're going to save this world for one yeah. thing. Well, that's, that's perhaps a, a good note to end on there, some positivity. There is, uh, there is progress being made. And um, again, just to, I, just, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. I mean, is there, is there anything else you wanted, to, you wanted to add in before we, before we wrap up today? Maybe some, some no, parting just, words? I tell you, keep up your work. That's all. You've got uh, you're a young guy uh, and you've got lots of years ahead of you. We've got to solve problems. And I think that the biggest problem of all may be the effect of food consumption on the environment. That is probably the number one thing right now. Because if we don't have an environment left, then talking about all these other things are moot. And uh, there's really good evidence that, that the consumption of livestock and livestock products is the number one cause of environmental problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's from the United Nations. So that's a really big issue, and that means consuming more plant-based foods, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons, and obviously, nutrition is one one big one. And um, yeah, you've done just so much work to you know promoting uh, this you know plant-based eating, whole whole food, plant-based diets. Um, and uh, when whenever anybody is forced to answer the question, you know, where do you get your protein? Uh, it's it's get it because from <laughs> get it from plants. <laughs> right, sorry. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode of the Vegan Champion Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy it, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever app you're listening on. That would really help boost the visibility of the show. And if you like the content of the show, feel free to give a follow on social media. Just search for the Vegan Champion Podcast or you can follow me at Jason Fonger across the various social media platforms. I would love to know what you think of the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.